Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway here with Cameron Conway. And today we're going to talk about saving for your first home. That's right. This week, we are going to crack into the brand new first home savings account announced by the government of Canada in the 2022 budget. Now that we are a couple steps closer to actually be able to implement these for our clients, we want to kind of talk you through sort of the nuts and bolts, who can qualify, what is this good for, is it even worth signing up for if you can qualify for, and a few other little helpful hints that kind of tie in a few other types of saving accounts. That's right. I mean, the reality really has changed over the last number of years where people are spending more time in the savings phase as they're preparing to buy their first home here in Canada. And any advantage that we can take to get there faster is great, right? And any program that is an initiative from the government to help us do that is something that we should take a close look at. Well, exactly. It's good to get people out of the screaming and crying phase and get them into the savings phase so they can actually get their own house. And call it what you will, the first home savings account really is kind of a mash of two investment types of accounts, TFSAs and RSPs, that both have pros and cons, but have limited ability to kind of specifically meet this goal. So we're going to talk about that new account today. We're also going to talk about how it integrates with the existing program through your RSP, which is the home buyer's plan. And then we want to touch on which type of investment accounts will help you get there faster. Because really, We need large down payments these days, especially if you find yourself in the metro area, either in uh, (laughs) Greater Toronto, Greater Vancouver, that kind of thing. Yeah, it kind of feels like today you need a down payment for your down payment just to kind of get things going. So let's dig into the nuts and bolts of these programs, how they work, what's available to you, when to do it, when not to do it, and what the advantages are. So let's start with the first home savings account kind of affectionately known, or maybe just because that's a mouthful, as the FHSA. You'd think a a government full of people with communication degrees and media experience would come up with a better name, or at least a better acronym. (laughs) I don't think they think the acronyms matter. I think we're more interested in what these programs actually do for you. So like you'd mentioned, Cam, this was announced in the 2022 federal budget, and there have been some revisions already, to be very honest. Initially, when this program came out, it was an either or between the existing home buyers plan and this. So it was an either or proposition. And now you can do both. So that alone is a huge step forward. And I think a way of kind of reaffirming the fact that, yes, we have further to go to get ourselves ready to be able to do something like purchase a home. Oh, that's right. The uh, laws and regulations are always subject to change of service. So kind of get ready. So yeah, they kind of made a couple alterations already before it's really being able to launch like us in the segregated fund side. We can start taking applications in December, but we can't actually implement them fully until March. I can't say the same about like the MFDA IROC side, but yeah, this is sort of still being rolled out and still kind of trying to get off off its feet to kind of try and help Canadians afford a larger down payment in order to really get some of these houses. 
Yeah. So in preparation of our being able to offer these to clients, we're kind of doing our research on this. We've also gotten some good information from one of the carriers that's going to be launching them very, very soon. And let's run through that now. Yes, it was the only good part of the two hour webinar I sat through with that carrier. (laughs) Oh, geez. Well, hey, every little bit helps. So let's talk about how these things work. First off, the first home savings account has an annual contribution limit, and that limit right now is set at $8,000. Now, during the lifespan of your having this account, you can contribute up to $40,000, and the maximum participation period is 15 years or into age 71, if you happen to be doing this a little bit later in life. So you have 15 years to save $40,000 and put it into this plan. So if you find yourself with the whole $8,000 to contribute each year, really in five years, you'll have maxed out your participation in this program. And that house you want to be about 48% more expensive. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Is that specific math? You know what? It's the Wild West out here. So <laughs> let's, not, let's not even think about what it's going to be five years from now. Now, one of the big reasons you would want to do this is like an RSP, contributions are tax deductible. That is huge because anytime you're able to get that money back, like we've seen previously with the home buyer's plan, you can actually accelerate your timeline by getting a refund, generating a refund if you already have normal withholding from your employment income that would lead to a refund. And you can reinvest that money and kind of get yourself going a little bit faster with the same dollars going into the plan. So that tax deductibility is a huge thing. But let's say you don't need the tax deduction this year. You can actually carry it forward and you can carry it forward indefinitely to my understanding all the way up to age 71 when, of course, these things have to be converted over into some type of income-producing account. Um, But more on that later. There are other options for withdrawal. Now, another big thing is that growth within the plan is tax-free. And it truly is tax-free because there's no requirement to pay tax back when you make a withdrawal, as long as it is a qualifying withdrawal. And I guess the qualifying withdrawal part is where they get a little sticky on the details because there's the big long laundry list of things that you have to meet and definitions that you have to meet in order to actually be able to take money out of these plans. And spoiler alert, when I was actually looking into this, the qualifying requirements to open a plan versus the qualifying requirements to make that withdrawal are actually different. So in the uh, light of this stuff being needlessly complicated, I think there are kind of other factors that you'll want to look in, want to talk to whatever financial institution you're using to get through this, um, to kind of go over the details with you at the time of purchasing one of these. And of course, the very definition of what a first-time home buyer is for the purpose of opening one of these is something that you'll want to consider. There is something known with the home buyer's plan as the four-year rule. And that's a rule that we find in these HFSAs as well. And I'm going to kind of read this a little bit verbatim so we don't get it wrong. Again, the rules can change, but For what we know right now at this point in time, this is how it's stated on the Government of Canada's website. 
So for the purpose of opening one of these plans, you're considered a first-time home buyer if you did not at any time in the current calendar year before the account is opened or at any time during the preceding four years live in a qualifying home as your principal price of residence that either you owned or you jointly owned or your spouse or common-law partner at the time the account is opened, owned, or jointly owned. So there's another important point there. If you have a common-law partner or a spouse that owns the home that you're living in, you would not be able to get one of these accounts. Yeah, this is sort of some of the guardrails they've started to set up to kind of avoid some creative cheekiness when it comes to setting up these accounts. They don't want someone, like you said, like someone who just is even just like on the common law side, you kind of hit that one year threshold. And then all of a sudden, if the person A owns the house and person B tries to set up this account, they kind of get locked out of it. Or what could also happen, they do kind of slip into it, they'll just get taxed on the back and they try and take it out. Well, and yeah, and I mean, if you're looking at kind of property division and common law rules, that falls into the scope of this as well, right? So that's always a consideration. Um, And To kind of finish that thought, for the purpose of the actual withdrawal, this is where that four-year rule comes into play. So I'm going to read that definition off of the government website as well, which is as follows, that you will be considered a first-time home buyer if you did not at any time in the current calendar year before the withdrawal, except the 30 days immediately before the withdrawal, or at any time in the preceding four calendar years, live in a qualifying home as your principal place of residence that you owned or jointly owned. Now, there is some debate here, and it seems that if you own a property as an investment that you have not lived in, there is the possibility for this account. But double check with your financial institution. That seems like more of a loophole than a rule. I'm not sure how long that'll be around for um, or what uh, the actual logistics of that will be. Yeah, I'm sure these things will get ironed out over the next four years because, like you said, it's going to take four years for people to kind of hit that threshold and be able to start taking the money out of this. So depending what happens in Ottawa and things going on, there could be drastic changes kind of between now and when that first wave of people can actually start withdrawing out of this. And I'm sure like the foreign homeowners ban, there'll probably be some monkeying around changes that no one bothers to tell the rest of the public about. Yeah, and the loophole on the uh, rental rule for now is essentially that if you haven't lived in a home as your own principal residence for a year or in that previous four years that we just discussed as well, that's where the eligibility is. So even just kind of reading that off of the government website, I mean, it feels like it's been written by a bureaucrat, right? Like it feels like you got to kind of watch your I's and your T's on this to make everything is crossed and dotted correctly and not the inverse. Perhaps a bureaucrat that owns a bunch of rental properties? Perhaps. But um, we are not political on this show. We try and stay far away from that. We'll keep our opinions to ourselves and we'll just kind of speak about what uh, the nature of these accounts are and how they can help you out. Oh, oh, don't worry. It's all sides of the aisle have that problem. (laughs) All right, so we're going to use a broad brush here and just paint the whole thing red. Anyways, let's get back to these accounts. So other pros and cons. If you find yourself in a partnered relationship and you haven't been disqualified because your spouse owns a property and you and your partner are looking to buy that first home together 
you can actually each have one of these accounts and use the full amount. Now that's a huge advantage because that $40,000 now turned into $80,000. Plus growth. Plus growth. And if you combine that with the home buyer's plan, which is $35,000 each, that's another $70,000. So we're at 80 plus 70 plus growth, plus, as we'll talk about a little bit later, anything that you have in your TFSA that's kind of up for grabs. So really, when these plans are used in combination, there is an opportunity to actually have a substantial amount available to you that you've been able to use some tax advantages to get there faster and also on that growth because tax-free growth is your absolute best friend. Well, exactly. You combine all these things together and you just about have enough money to pay your realtor. Ooh, burn. A lot of realtors aren't going to like us after that one, but that's okay. We don't plan on selling anytime soon. No, we're good. So let's look at a few more details. Let's say you've qualified for one of these plans, but it's been a rough year and you don't have that full $8,000 that you wanted to put towards the plan. That's okay. Like we said, not only do you have the full 15 years to do it, but you actually get a carry forward to a maximum of $16,000. And it's also important to note that unlike an RRSP, you don't actually have to earn this contribution room. It's more like a TFSA, where it's essentially kind of gifted to you. Uh, Like if you're a TFSA, by virtue of being the age of majority in Canada, you have the ability to accrue a certain amount of TFSA room every year, currently $6,000, but it's changed from the start of the program to where it is now. This kind of works the same way. If you qualify for this program, you have the ability to magically accrue that $8,000 per year, whether you use it or not. Just make sure you don't go over that carry forward amount because then there can be some penalties. That's right. Do not pass go or you will collect an audit. (laughs) And make sure that you get it in by December 31st every year. Now, with RSPs, we've kind of conditioned to use that first 60 days. So people think, you know what, I have until February. I don't have to worry about this now. It's Christmas. I'm on vacation. I'm taking some time off. I'll push that into the new year with all my other resolutions and get it done then. Nope, not the case for this. So December 31st is that hard stop for that year. And after that, December 31st, you're into the carry forward period. So just make sure that if you have more than that $16,000, you are not losing contribution room unnecessarily just because you missed that date. Now, let's quickly look at who qualifies. So you have to be a Canadian resident here. You need a social insurance number. You need to be legal age of majority in your province of residence. That's important. And you have to be under age 71. Most likely to stop people from uh, piggybacking off their RRSPs to avoid the riffing stage, I'm, sh- I'm assuming. Well, that's another thing as well. This room can be transferred into your RRSP or even into a riff if you don't use it. And it's not based on the contribution room that you've had to earn by working otherwise for your RRSPs. So it's basically like free RRSP room that you've never had access to before that you haven't actually had to work to earn if you don't use the money to buy a qualified home at the end of the program. Well, that's right. You can take your unused money from your FHSA, roll it into your RRSP, and then since you didn't buy that house, use that money to pay your rent for a few months. 
Ouch. Oh, <laughs> oh, I'm on a roll tonight. Oh, my goodness. We should mention it's about 9.30 in the evening. We both got pretty little sleep last night. So maybe you don't want to buy that qualifying home because then you have to deal with all of the stuff that comes with home ownership. Okay, so back to the subject matter. Let's say you've gone through this program, you've participated for a while, and then times have changed, luck has changed, situation has changed, and you just find yourself in a position where you're not going to buy that first home. Now, you have decided for whatever reason that you do not want to put the money in your RSP or your RIF. Maybe you just think, hey, I need this money. This is my money. You can withdraw the funds. You can take them out yourself. But like a withdrawal from an RRSP, that is 100% taxable. So it's going to be added to your income in the year of withdrawal. And if there's a big chunk of change in there, that could be a significant tax hit. So like an RSP, that could bump you up into a higher tax bracket. And even though you got that tax deduction, making the money into this, you could actually end up paying more tax if you take this out. So please, if you don't use this, roll it into your RSP. You don't even have the excuse of not having the room. Are you saying this is a really bad way to get more contribution room for your RSP by bumping yourself up a few tax brackets with this? Oh, geez. Well, you know what? It is extra RSP contribution room if you don't use it. So just even though you do have the ability to withdraw the funds, in your mind, if you can just take that option off the table, especially if you're working, especially if you find yourself later in life where you're maybe at the peak of your income earning years, it will basically, it will be bad, right? It's kind of the worst thing you want to do with an RSP, with a plan like this, where now you have extra taxable income. You're going to be in a higher tax bracket. It could mess up. I mean, if you've got like child tax credit, things like that, other things that are income tested could kind of get impacted by having a sudden influx of a big chunk of change into your hands. So last resort option for sure. And similar to the way that you can have more than one TFSA or more than one RSP, you can have more than one of these HFSAs, but it then becomes your burden to track both your annual contribution and your lifetime contribution to make sure that you don't go over on all of the accounts that you have. That just makes it one step more complicated than it needs to be. So much simpler to just keep it to one institution. Um, I can't think of a really good reason to have more than one other than, you know, you like the extra work and really there are better ways to spend our time and energy. Yeah, the contribution limit is way too low to kind of come up with like clever ways like a GIC here, or fund there or something else. Yeah, the the threshold is too low to play those kind of games. Save that for your TFSA. Yeah, geez. Well, and another thing that we hear all the time is parents wanting to help their adult children get into their home, right? Like they've seen huge capital appreciation on their own principal residence, which of course is tax-free, but they're saying, oh, you know what? My kid is never going to be in that same position to get into the market the way that I did when housing cost a lot less years and years and years ago, decades ago, right? So sometimes adults, the parents, want to help their adult children. And the question comes up then of, can you put money in for someone else? And the answer, as far as what I found, was a no. But what you could do is you could gift the money to that adult child. And the adult child could then take it 
and make the contribution for themselves. Now, of course, you're acting in good faith as soon as you gift the money. That money is no longer your property. The adult child could really do, could have a great weekend with that. You could have a great year with that. But hey, you know what? Whatever. Um, it's not their, It's not your property anymore. It's the property of that adult child. And hopefully they decide to use some of the tax advantaged benefits of using this FHSA. Okay, now let's pivot for a minute to the existing RSP home buyers plan. Now, this plan has been around for a while. And to kind of sum it up, essentially, you can use up to $35,000 already in your RSP to buy a qualifying first home. And like we said earlier, like the other type of account, your spouse can do this too. Your common law partner can do this too, as long as they also meet the qualifying requirements. So potentially up to $35,000. Now, people have liked this program because it doesn't have that annual cap the same way as the FHSA does. So let's say you're wanting to save money up quickly and maybe you've inherited money, maybe you've come on some cash, uh, maybe your employer is helping you through a group RSP and you can check with your HR department or your employer at work to see if money in that account could actually qualify for one of these home buyer plan withdrawals as well. It can be useful here if you're planning on buying sooner. And by sooner, I mean in the next couple of years to put the money in because there's no upper limit on how much you can put in for this. And like I said, some people, if you've been saving for a while in your RSP, might have the money there already. Now, there is a caveat that says the money has to be in your RSP for at least 90 days before participation in this plan. So you can't put it in yesterday, take it out tomorrow, and have it all be kosher. They're trying to discourage misuse of the program. So they're saying, okay, we want it to kind of settle for a little bit. Yeah, this is what thin track is for. <laughs> Among other things. So similar to the FHSA account, the RSP contributions that you make into this, you're going to get that tax deduction as well, right? So they're tax deductible. Again, if you already have a regular employment income, so we're not talking about self-employment people that maybe haven't withheld or done anything like that. We're talking about people that have had regular self-employment income or regular employment income where tax has been withheld already. They usually can expect to have that refund generated, which again can be reinvested to kind of speed up the process for you. Like think about it this way. Let's say you're in the 28% combined BC federal tax bracket and you put in $1,000. That's $280 back that you can then reinvest in the plan. And that is fantastic, right? You're essentially using the money twice. Now on the flip side, when this money comes out, you actually have to repay it back into your RSP to avoid it being added to your income in that tax year. The government has given you a 15-year period to do so, which begins essentially two years after the year of withdrawal. So you've got a couple years before you have to start making this. And it's basically the amount that you borrow divided by that 15-year repayment period. Now, 
here's where it starts to hurt a little bit. When you put the money back into your RSP, you're not going to get that tax refund generated because you already got the refund when you put it in initially. So if you're used to saving money in your RSP and getting a tax break or not owing so much at the end of the year, you can find yourself in the position where now you're making these repayments, but they're being designated as repayments. So they're not like regular RSP contributions. And that's another important point there, too. A lot of people will sometimes forget to designate this as a repayment. So they put money into their RSP. They think it's automatically going to count towards their home buyers. And it doesn't unless you've specifically said, take this dollar amount and put it towards this program. It's not going to count. So you would have that income inclusion as well for one-fifteenth of whatever amount it was you borrowed up to that $35,000. Yeah, this is why it's a good idea to kind of give your accountant a heads up on what you're doing and making sure that the right number goes on the right line of your tax return. Otherwise, when your tax return is getting auto-scanned, it's going to flag that for going over your limit and you'll get like a little pleasant conversation with someone from Ottawa or Gatineau or Winnipeg or Surrey, whoever calls you. But yeah, it's making sure that things are filled out properly in your tax return. So the right number allocates to pay off this loan and you're not trying to reclaim it as an initial deposit into the RRSP. Okay. So I think in the situation you just described, a person would have to be fully contributed into their RSP, meaning they have no additional RSP contribution room. Um, And they've used their kind of buffer limit already on that, which is the $2,000 buffer that we all have. Um, Other disadvantages to using this plan are that you're taking potentially a big chunk of money out of your RSP. And if that was money that you were banking on for your retirement, and let's say you don't put it back in right away, you take that full 15 years, it can take a lot of compounding interest out of the equation for you. So you may not have as much saved for retirement as you had originally anticipated when you began your RSP contributions. So it's always good to kind of recheck your retirement planning, your retirement income projection numbers at the same time of doing this, just to make sure that it doesn't negatively impact any of your retirement plans. Am I hearing a time value of money calculation speech coming or are you we going to skip are. over that? Let's skip over that today. Uh, Cam was recently studying that, so he could talk to us for hours, I'm sure. But we'll save that for another day. Uh, the other thing I should mention here is that um, you can repay this right away. So you don't have to take the full 15 years If the following year you suddenly find yourself with $35,000 or whatever amount you had borrowed and you want to put it in right away, just be sure to designate the full amount as that repayment. And then you've kind of gotten over that hurdle of losing the time in your RSP. Well, yeah, you never know. You could win the lottery or you can get a contract as a government consultant. You can just have money just suddenly be ready to pay this thing off right away and you won't have to drag it out for 15 years. Well, that's right. And I mean, a lot of people view the lost opportunity cost as now they're in a principal residence. The principal residence will have tax-free growth. So that is another way of accruing an asset that can be used. It's not as liquid as an RSP during your retirement, but it is equity that will be there for you for the future. So depending on how the markets do versus how the housing market does, it's just another asset class that you're essentially invested in to further your own net worth. 
And like we hit on a little bit earlier with the FHSA, uh, this also has that four-year rule. So don't automatically disqualify yourself as a first-time homebuyer. Read the specific rules that are listed out there or talk to your provider just to see if you actually will qualify for a type of program like this. Now, we've talked about the home buyer's plan. We've talked about the FHSAs. There is another way that can kind of get you ahead as you're saving to purchase your first home, and that is your tax-free savings account. So if we're comparing it to the other two, this one is the type of account that will not get you a deduction on your taxes. Now, that may not be a bad thing, because if you're contributing both to the homebuyer's plan and the FHSA, you might find, depending on what your taxable income is, that you're kind of, as you're putting all this money in, you're in a lower tax bracket anyways, so you're still getting refunded, but you're getting it refunded at a lower rate, because the more you put in, the more it's going to drop your tax bracket potentially down based on whatever your otherwise income picture looks like it. So with the TFSA, no money back. But the big pro of the TFSA is with kind of the caveat of you can be limited by what you've invested in, like if you purchase a GIC or another product that's locked in. But beyond that, they are fully available to you to access at any time. And kind of as a cherry on top, even if you took out the whole thing tomorrow, on January 1st, all of your contribution room is available to you all over again. So if you'd maxed it out, you pull the whole thing out, plus the tax-free growth that you've got. The following year, you can't ever replace that tax-free growth that you've now taken out, but you can get the initial contribution room back. So these plans are fantastic for kind of moving money in and moving money out because as long as you're comfortable waiting the year, you never really lose. Now, this is where things can start to get interesting. So let's say over the next five years, you get all of your ducks in order. You've got your source of savings coming in from somewhere. Wink, wink. You have your 40K available from the FHSA. You've got 35K in your RRSP for the home buyer's plan. You've maxed out your contribution input of your TFSA of $80,000. You suddenly have $163,000 of principal available, plus whatever growth you can generate. And if you combine this with your spouse or common-law partner, you suddenly have uh, $326,000 of principal investment available to put towards your first home. Again, so you can kind of add on whatever growth you got over those years to kind of top that up. It could be 326, could be 350, could be higher. But if you could be diligent and you actually kind of max out all these different sources, you could have a decent chunk available to purchase that first home. Well, and we kind of look through things in the lens of being in a metro area. But I mean, if you live in the prairies or if you live in a more lower cost of living, more affordable region, I mean, that can be an entire purchase price for a property. And if you look at the types of qualifying properties, it goes everything from mobile homes to townhouses to condos to freestanding homes. There's a big long list of what actually counts as a qualifying home for a lot of these products. Does the van down by the river count? It does not. <laughs> Does the land by the river count? Are you going to build a shack on that land? And is that shack to standard? Can a city inspector come inspect your shack by the river? Is there running water? Okay, let's not go of there. Of course there's running water. It's a river. <laughs> running and drinkable are two very different things. We're from Winnipeg. We know how that works. That's true. So all of this to say that 
there is a material advantage here, whether it is a down payment or whether it is the better part of the purchase in a lower cost of living area. Think about it like this. Let's say you invest in these programs and you find yourself in a city like Winnipeg or you're in Saskatchewan or even parts of Alberta. I mean, there's still some affordability there, too, which is fantastic. If you did this, instead of taking that mortgage earlier on, of course, we have no idea what the housing market is going to do. Maybe it appreciates a lot more. We don't know. But this could eliminate the need for a good size mortgage, which we know that mortgages, of course, compound against you. They're basically compounding interest working against you instead of for you like they are in these plans. So the more that you can put away and the more prepared you can be going into this, the more you can lower your total cost over the whole lifetime of whatever home you do decide to purchase. And that can be incredibly powerful. Now, like we said, the real estate market has been a huge wild card since before COVID. Uh, It's gone up astronomically. You don't need anyone to tell you that. But part of using these accounts and staying out of the market is, I guess, from that point of view, a risk. But the ability to have that compounding in your investments happening for you can be a benefit as well. So horribly impossible to time these things. But if it's available to you and if it's something that you're wanting to get into, by all means, talk to someone qualified, review these rules with them. Because as we're learning about these for the first time, and as we're kind of going over the information that's been put out for there, there's no guarantee that the rules will stay the same in the future. So it's always good to get the most current and up-to-date information from a professional or from someone who knows what they're doing um, as you're kind of going through that. And of course, the other side of this that we didn't discuss that we've kind of run out on time for today is choosing the investments carefully within this to maximize growth, but also to understand that your time horizon is going to be short potentially on this. We don't know. Maybe it is 15 years. Maybe it's less. So you really have to balance that risk to reward because you don't want to find yourself at the end of this period with less than you started with or less than you've contributed because of a bad timing in the market, but you don't want to go too safe and not have this thing grow. So a lot of conversation to be had with your financial advisor at this point in time as well to balance all of those factors. So if you find yourself looking for a financial advisor and you're in the BC area, you can reach out to us at Braun Financial. That's braunfinancial.com. We are still moving at the speed of compliance. Is that what you said? Speed of bureaucracy. Speed of bureaucracy. Uh, as we're trying to figure out how to get this to more people in other provinces. So please bear with us as we figure it out. As always, we love hearing from you. Please feel free to reach out to us on the Facebook page. It's Personal Finance Canada. And of course, if there's anything that you want to add that you feel like we didn't address properly or honestly, if something has changed, this content does not get updated, right? So feel free to bring it over to the Facebook page as well. So we'll leave it at that for today. Until next time, take care. And all the best.